And uh, if your Bible has shut, uh, turn back to Ephesians. We heard just in chapter 1 about the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. Now, we're going to read verses 1 to 10 of chapter 2 and see something of that greatness at what we were. That's what we're looking at this evening in the coming weeks, what he has done by his grace. Um, The words uh, should be in the Bibles. They're also on the screens uh, behind me. So let's say these words all together. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us, in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let me just uh, lead us in prayer once again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you so much for your kindness and your lavish grace towards us in Christ. As we consider the depths of the problem, our own natural state outside of Christ, would it give us all the more reason to praise you, uh, to the praise of your glorious grace, to be grateful for Jesus and strengthen to live for him. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, we will have time after uh, the talk to uh, get into groups and uh, pray and also chat. So if you do want to just scribble down questions or, or thoughts as we go along, that would be really helpful. It might help you pay attention, but it might also be an opportunity afterwards just to, to chat with one another about things that stood out or, or questions you had or things particularly to pray in. As I mentioned earlier, this evening we're beginning a new series, just zooming in on those 10 verses we've read uh, together in Ephesians chapter 2. And whether we're regular, whether we're here for the first time, they are brilliant, life-changing verses. We're going to spend these four weeks looking at uh, truths about God's character, uh, what he's doing in the world. And each week is designed really to be a building block of faith. If we're a Christian, it's like we're examining uh, the foundations. Are we built on this biblical gospel? Uh, Glorious truths about God, uh, but also, especially this evening, sobering realities 
about ourselves. You see, what does it mean to be a Christian? I wonder if we've thought that. Uh, well, today it means in part remembering our roots, remembering where we've come from. Uh, if we're not yet a Christian, uh, what an opportunity to examine what the Christian faith is all about, looking at the very heart of the good news about Jesus Christ. Because the good news only makes sense when we have the right diagnosis and knowing the, the situation we're in. Is it life and death or maybe something less serious? I don't know if you remember, a couple of summers ago, it was one of those blazingly hot summers, not like the one we've just had, and uh, there was a news story about uh, how on a particularly hot day, a man returns to his car, having spent the day at the beach, to find the window of his car has been smashed in. But strangely, nothing's been taken. And then it dawns on him, he had um, left, just on the back seat, a very lifelike uh, puppy toy. And uh, some passerby clearly thought, poor puppy, boiling hot day, smashed in the window to rescue the dog only to find out it's a toy. They, they misjudged the situation. Uh, what about the situation of humanity? Uh, well, verses 1 to 3 of Ephesians 2, we get these sobering truths, the diagnosis of our natural state. Apart from Jesus Christ, we are all, every single one of us, deceased, disobedient, deceived, and doomed. If you're wanting to make notes, they're the kind of four things we'll go through. It's not pleasant reading, is it? In fact, these verses are the worst news ever. I just want to kind of get that out in the open. Uh, this is why everyone who's ever lived, every single person in this room, every individual in Tunbridge Wells across the globe is so desperately in need of rescue because of these four descriptions, four truths of what we were like, what the natural state of every human being is. And so as I said, first up, verse one, we're deceased, dead as a dado. Apart from Jesus Christ, we are all deceased. Verse 1, and you were dead. It runs so counter to what we hear, even in some churches, doesn't it? Paul doesn't say, and you were unfulfilled. You were unsatisfied, you were ill, your desires were misplaced. No, you were dead. And now the you here is uh, those Gentiles, so that's non-Jews who've become Christians. Very quickly, though, it's clear, verses 1 to 3 is all of us. Now, to help us, I just want us to imagine, um, it's pretty grotty, but I think it's what's helpful, just to imagine a, a corpse lying in front of us up here in the front. In fact, once I was preaching this passage, I managed to get a mannequin and dressed it up, but we haven't done that this evening. Um, uh, England are playing India in the cricket at the moment. Just uh, imagine we get this corpse and we put it in as England's opening batsman. Uh, how are they going to get on? Or um, we, some of us may have been watching the Olympics at Japan. Just imagine the beginning of the 100 metres in the starting blocks, a limp, lifeless corpse. It's absurd, isn't it? A corpse literally cannot even lift a finger. It's dead. There's no point telling a corpse what to do, is there? But it's exactly the same as telling a dead person to love Jesus and live for him. No, they just can't do it. Apart from Jesus, we are utterly hopeless and helpless. Fundamentally, Paul says, we're dead. Obviously, this can't mean uh, physically dead, already physically dead. No, Paul's point is we're spiritually dead, cut off from God, and so cut off from true life. We can do absolutely nothing to change our situation. When I was at theological college, I remember we once went on a field trip, which is less exciting than it sounds. It wasn't a trip to a Roman villa or to Thorpe Park. No, we went on a field trip to a funeral director's and a crematorium. Uh, the idea was to prepare this bunch of kind of vicars-to-be to see a dead body. So we went to the back of a funeral home uh, to see a corpse. 
At no point was I expecting it to, to kind of jump up or, or, or twitch or, or speak to me. Nothing it could do to, to move or reanimate itself. I know we've got one or two doctors in our midst, but for most of us, we don't see dead bodies in the normal course of life. And perhaps we miss some of the punch of what Paul's saying here. He's saying it, in our natural state, we have no inclination, no responsiveness towards God, no ability to please him. Nothing in and of ourselves we can do to make ourselves alive. But I think he's saying even more than just spiritually dead. You see, it's not just a metaphor. What does he say? You were dead. Now, it's true we're unresponsive, unable to turn to God. But Paul's saying, no, you're actually really dead. And it becomes obvious when we look back. I hope you've got your Bibles open. Just to chapter 1, verse 20. I'll give it a bit of a, a run in. His power, sorry, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So that, that's the kind of picture of, of God's power. And Paul's not dealing in pictures and metaphors, but reality. And it's not just spiritual, is it? Jesus physically died, physically rose. Uh, Paul's going to go on to talk about being made alive with Christ in verse 5, being uh, raised with Christ, verse 6. God's power to raise Jesus physically, literally from the dead, is the same power necessary to raise us from the dead. So I think maybe a helpful picture is um, a lizard's tail that, that's cut off. You know, maybe you've seen it still twitching, wriggling, writhing. It looks alive, but is dead. Or maybe a kind of vase of cut flowers. Very, very pretty. Uh, vibrant, look beautiful and alive, but ultimately dead, cut down, cut off, and uh, from now on withering and decaying. Uh, so often we like to think uh, we're alive, especially when we're young, so much of our life ahead of us. People spend billions upon billions every year trying to fight the fact that we're all withering and decaying, some quicker than others, but no one can stop it. And Paul says, you were dead. Uh, but that's not all. Uh, actually dead, but also actively dead, kind of morally dead. Uh, so secondly, this evening, apart from Christ, we're all disobedient. Uh, disobedient, that's the second one. Here's how uh, Paul continues. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Or uh, if you just scan down to the end of verse 2. In the sons of disobedience. And now a trespass captures the idea of overstepping a boundary you shouldn't cross. It's the, the long jumper stepping on the, the kind of, you know, the putty. It's the, the pitch invader during the final. It's uh, the burglar at night breaking in, treading where they shouldn't. We've broken God's law. Each one of us has disobeyed his good law. And we're sinners. As sinners, this time it's a picture of an archer, but every time they aim for the target, they miss. And that's what's meant by sins here. We, we completely fail to miss God's standards. In other words, we're in error both ways. What we do breaks God's commands, and what we fail to do leaves us hopelessly short of his standards. However we look at it, we're not what we should be. Disobedient, that's the heart of sin, rebelling against God, wanting to live my life independent of him. And so now the picture, we're kind of, it's getting a bit morbid now, it's of a kind of active corpse. Uh, we're dead, but actively disobeying God, we're deservedly dead. And none of us naturally want to go God's way. That We have this inbuilt bias against God. 
So we're beginning to see, I hope, that the gospel, or being a Christian, must involve God doing what we can't to make up for us doing what we shouldn't do. So this uh, passage, it feels a bit like that um, Dr. Joker, I don't know if you've heard this one. The doctor turns to the patient and says, I have some bad news and some very bad news. And the patient replies, well, you might as well give me the bad news first. And the doctor, with a serious look on their face, says, the lab called with your test results. You've got 24 hours to live. 24 hours to live? That, that's terrible. What could be worse? What's the very bad news? Oh, I've been trying to reach you since yesterday. If things seem bad, well, actually, they're, they're much worse. Dead, disobedient. But also, apart from Christ, every single one of us is deceived. That we were entrapped, enslaved, and we didn't even know it. In fact, just following, did you see the ways of this world? Can we see it, verse 2? You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once uh, walked, following the course of this world. I so say following the course of this world means our trespasses and sins didn't stand out. They're not particularly noticeable. In fact, we're just like everyone around us. Hey, did you notice by verse 3, Paul's talking about everyone, Jew and Gentile? And not just actions now. These trespasses and sins stem from a desire to go our own way, not God's way. It's an attitude problem, and everyone has it. Uh, to go against God is just going the way of the world, fitting in with those around us. Uh, fish swimming in water. I take it they don't realise they're surrounded by water. It's just their natural habitat. Uh, sin is our, our natural habitat. But we're not even alive. We're, we're dead and we don't even know it. So, so now it's more like a corpse in a river. A dead body has no idea it's in a river, just bobbing along with the flow. Inevitably, it has to go with the flow. We don't drift into godliness. We don't become Christians by osmosis. No, again, we, we need God to break in and do the impossible by his great power. We'll think more about that next week. But then perhaps even more shockingly, did you notice here Paul says we're deceived by the, the devil? That's who Paul means when he writes about following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Then if you're like me, it's, a, it's pretty sobering. Frankly, we recoil at the idea. Remember, this is what is true for every single person outside of Christ. And it's true for those still outside of Christ. I remember when we um, first moved to Sevenex a few years ago, um, my wife was uh, driving around and saw a bunch of people dressed up in kind of weird garb, kind of prancing around a, a bonfire. And she got back and said, Tom, there's not a kind of Satanist cult in Sevenex, is there? And as far as I'm aware, there's not. Uh, this isn't saying that everyone is consciously signing up to some kind of weird cult. Paul is saying we all belong to the family of those who rebel against the holy and true God. It's true our friends and family may look respectable, that may be nice people who can do kind things, but ultimately under the sway of the devil. And to make matters worse, naturally we want to live this way, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Uh, flesh here isn't kind of muscle and skin and sinew. It's a, a nature opposed to God, an inbuilt desire to go our way, not God's way. Now, Paul's not saying we're as bad as we possibly could be. doesn't mean we can never do anything good. People still do kind, caring acts. simply means beneath the veneer of respectability, we aren't what we should be. Actually, when people 
are honest with themselves, we know that, don't we? How much less are we what God wants us to be? Now, outside of Jesus, we all live for ourselves and we want to. That my life has me at the centre and I think nothing of it. That people don't naturally wake up and think, how can I serve Jesus and bring him glory today? No, living for ourselves is the most natural thing, the most normal thing in the world. Because we were dead, uh, disobedient, deceived, no hope. Uh, we've got the world, the devil, our own sinfulness lined up against us. What chance does anyone have? Well, I'm afraid things get worse before they get better. Uh, we've said it's like a, a corpse uh, floating down a river. Now we find the kind of corpse is floating down the river towards a waterfall. That's how the kind of picture gets built up. Our final truth this evening, apart from Jesus Christ, we are doomed. Uh, before you tell me later on, I, I know that I kind of need to check into Alliterators Anonymous, but it, it kind of seems to fit, so I hope it's helpful. Just look how Paul ends verse 3. And were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Again, the natural normative condition of everyone is under God's wrath. If that sounds harsh, then may I suggest we haven't really grasped the first couple of verses God is deservedly angry with humanity. He made the world. He gives us every good thing we enjoy. Just think of something you've enjoyed today. Something you've enjoyed over the, the last week or month. Every good gift from God. And yet outside of Christ, in our own nature, we throw it back in his face. And so are by nature deserving of wrath. I remember at once a parent at a school where I used to give assemblies emailed me in outrage. It wasn't a normal thing. I didn't get lots of emails in outrage. Just um, one parent. And, and the problem, the reason she was so upset, I had mentioned God's wrath. I talked about God's anger. They even sent me a link to an article about the dangers of thinking of God uh, as an angry God. It says how religion like that is primitive and dangerous with a scary, threatening God. God's wrath, it seems to many, is something of an embarrassment or just plain wrong and outdated. God can't be angry, he's a loving God. And of course, if we think we're all basically good people, then God's wrath does make no sense. But we're not good, and God's wrath isn't opposed to his love. The opposite of love isn't anger, but apathy. And God's wrath in the Bible isn't the problem, but the solution. It is his settled, just anger against sin expressed in the appropriate punishment of the sinner. In fact, without wrath, the gospel, the good news, is stripped of any meaning. Uh, this is why we need to, to hear this. Uh, a chap called uh, Leon Morris, he uh, wrote a few books on the Bible, he says this, unless we give a real content to the wrath of God, unless we hold that men really deserve to have God visit upon them the painful consequences of their wrongdoing, we empty God's forgiveness of its meaning. For if there is no ill desert, God ought to overlook sin. We can think of forgiveness as something real only when we hold that sin has betrayed us into a situation where we deserve to have God inflict upon us the most serious consequences, and that is upon such a situation that God's grace supervenes. When the logic of the situation demands that he should take action against the sinner, and yet he takes action for him, then and then alone can we speak of grace. But there is no room for grace if there is no suggestion of dire consequences merited by sin. What he's saying is verses 1 to 3 are actually good news. They show God cares. Do you realize that God cares about justice? 
He cares about sin. He cares about his glory. He cares about us. God isn't content to leave all of humanity in this condition. Deceased. Disobedient. Deceived. Doomed. There is a ray of hope. I don't know if there was an outline, but if, it, if there is one that you saw, it was meant to have a question mark at the end of doomed. Doomed question mark. You see, all of this, did we spot, is past tense. Paul is speaking to Christians, people who, verse 1, once walked, used to, at one time, were formerly like this. But now they're not. There is a way out. So if we are trusting in Jesus, I take it most of us here this evening are, is this not wonderfully humbling? God didn't save me or you because of anything in us, because we showed some kind of potential or flicker of life. He saved us simply because he chose to love us. Doesn't it make us overflow with gratitude? We couldn't, didn't, and never can do anything to save ourselves. We were this awful, this bad, this opposed to God, and yet... He sent his son to die for us. As we uh, ponder and plumb the depths from which we've been saved, surely it should make us more grateful. Do you remember those Chilean miners back in 2010? It's way back now, maybe before some of you were even born. But um, if they had been rescued from a ditch, I don't think it would have made the headlines. But uh, they were trapped 700 meters down. No escape, facing almost certain death. The great depth showed the great rescue. Except in Ephesians 2 language, you're not 700 meters below the surface. We are dead and buried. It shows us our desperate need of rescue in life. I just maybe you're not yet a Christian. Well, here's a question for you. Do I think verses 1 to 3 are true of me now, were true of me in the past, or have never been a true description of me? Just worth pondering that. Throwing... Uh, one of those um, life rings to a corpse bobbing up and down in the sea does no good, does it? Uh, what they need is someone to, to dive in, possibly down to the, the depths of the ocean, if they're a rotting corpse, uh, and somehow give them new life. Apart from Jesus Christ, we're dead. Spiritual corpses. So there's, there's no overcoming adversity just by setting our minds to it, no trying harder, no God helps those who helps them, help themselves, no turning over a new leaf, no amount of going to church or youth group, no Disney philosophy, just believe in yourself, no divine spark inside each one of us, no searching for the magic inside yourself. Now outside of Christ, we're dead, utterly hopeless and helpless, needing a rescue, not just resuscitation, but a new life. So later on in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says we put on the new self, that the new person created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Uh, some of you may know, probably not many of you though, that um, a few years ago my dad was told just out of the blue he needed a triple heart bypass. Um, he, wasn't, he was fit, healthy, it was a calcification rather than fat in the arteries. And uh, so he was faced with a, a question, would he believe the diagnosis, believe the doctor, or um, kind of think, no, I'm fine reject the operation and face heart failure. As he went into the operation, it turned out he needed a quadruple heart bypass. I wonder what we make of this diagnosis. Dismiss it, try and perform open heart surgery on ourselves and see how well that goes, or read on to the rescue. I do hope you'll join us next week. Now, the doctor's diagnosis may sometimes be hard to hear, but we need the prescription, or rather we could say here that the morgue attendant's verdict because uh, we're in the grave, not on the gurney. 
Tunbridge Wells is full of nice people, regularly voted one of the happiest places to live, and yet these verses still hold true. Now, the Christian message doesn't flatter us, but it does show us what's required to change us and the extent of God's love. That makes us realistic about ourselves and the world. I think the age of apathy in the UK is uh, coming to an end. We're seeing increased hostility uh, to Christians living for Jesus and speaking of him. If uh, people are presented with these truths, I don't imagine they'll just shrug their shoulders and walk on by. It'll get people's backs up. But for some, uh, our friends at school, colleagues in the workplace, it may just be that they recognize this diagnosis as God works in them by his spirit and leads them to receiving the greatest rescue ever. Over the next uh, four weeks, we're going to see how the perfect solution fits the depths of the problem, how in Jesus we are made alive fully and forever. Uh, Paul tells us how we're saved, not to continue in disobedience, but to obey God, to do genuinely good works. Uh, we discover or we're reminded how we're liberated from bondage to sin, the world, the devil, those things we've been considering. And we'll be amazed how his utterly undeserved grace transforms us. God deals with his wrath through his great love. I'm going to lead us in a short prayer now. And then I reckon we can just turn into groups where we are. And if we're on Zoom, uh, we can chat with one another. And we'll take 15 minutes, I think. So it's a bit of time just to, to chat, ask questions, maybe a few minutes chatting. Uh, anything that kind of stood out for you. And then a few minutes praying as well would be a really good uh, way to spend the time. But let me lead us in prayer first. And you were dead. Father God, thank you for the clarity of your word. Thank you for how it exposes us in our natural state. Please help us see the depths of our hopelessness and helplessness outside of Christ. And would it help us to find Jesus to be more precious, to love him more? Please would we remember that this is true for all those around us as well. We know how quick we are um, to water the gospel down, uh, to not remember these biblical truths. So please imprint them upon our hearts and minds that we might be more earnest in our service of Jesus as we grow in our gratitude to him. In his name we ask it. Amen.